Welcome to the second episode of Earwig Serials. I'm your host, Tyler McNamara, and for the next 37 episodes of Season 1, I'll be reading from my book, The Mother of Dark Space. Chapter 1. Hearts. Ray. The vitamin D lights in her cramped bunk room were supposed to help with depression. They weren't working. Another frost geyser shook the entire underground laboratory, and she could hear her team's loud, jovial reaction from the rec room at the end of the hall. The geysers had been unnerving at first, but now Ray was so bored she almost wished the next one would breach the walls and instantly freeze everyone solid. She had tried spending time with the other scientists, but it was during these periods of personal time that Dr. Manfield made his most obvious attempts to hit on her. It wasn't so bad as harassment goes, certainly not worth starting a scandal about. She couldn't even imagine how poorly a sexual harassment complaint might affect her climb up the corporate ladder, or worse, that it might give her an advantage over others, and that people might think her rise was all just social manipulation. With no window out of which to gaze longingly, she stared at the ceiling and wondered what a CO2 blizzard looked like. The digital sensors on the rover, before being sealed in a tomb of frost, claimed winds over 300 kilometers per hour and temperatures around minus 90 degrees Celsius. It had been 51 hours since she finished testing the last batch of ice core samples, and there was nothing left for her to do. Ray remembered something Deborah had told her once. Ever since you were little, you always had to have some project you were working on. Ray's first 13-month year at UMARS had just come to an end, and the students were given a three-month holiday. Everyone called it summer break, although it was scheduled not around the seasons, but to accommodate new students arriving from Earth, which happened every 26 months when the two planets were closest to each other. She was a week into summer break and so bored that she had started texting her mother again. What sort of projects did I do when I was younger? If you weren't ruining your bedroom walls with finger paints, you would take apart small appliances and try to fix them. I wish at least once helping your dear old mom could have been enough to occupy you. And there it was, the icy chill of guilt that had kept her from texting her mother in the past. But I do have my Hakaro project, Ray thought. Rolling onto her side, she opened the Hakaro puzzle app on her Omni. The simple app took real bioengineering research and put it in the hands of tens of millions of eager players. A tetrahedron of colored DNA strands appeared on the screen, representing a synthetic microorganism, which had taken Ray three hours to design. It was almost complete, save for one missing strand. She flicked her finger as if she were turning a page of a book, and the tetrahedron responded by rotating on its x-axis. In Ray's opinion, the best thing about these Hakaru puzzles was that they weren't created with a solution in mind. There were puzzles that were three years old, just gathering victory points for every day they went unsolved. But Ray was not ashamed to admit that being the first to solve the weekly puzzle was, to her, more exciting than attempting the older unsolved puzzles. Ray spun the organism around for five minutes, getting nowhere. Even though this puzzle was only eight hours old, two other players had already found solutions, which infuriated her and dampened all hope of creativity. Given an infinite number of monkeys, she thought. After spinning the organism around a few more times, she decided she needed a bigger screen. Ray pulled herself out of bed and awakened the nearby workstation. Before her Omni could pair with the desk's ergonomically curved screen, it displayed a large, glorious image of the new Evermore Industries building. A moment later, the desk asked her which screen she wanted to work on, and she selected the building. A URL in the lower right corner of the screen read, Take the tour, followed by the EI logo, a black E and white I stylized to look like brackets, enclosing a gray Mobius strip twisted into a diagonal, asymmetrical figure eight. The aesthetic was clean and tight and seemed to pose a question, but Ray wasn't sure what it was. She had already taken the tour several times. 
The video touted their recently completed facility built by an architect of Swedish origin before he immigrated to Mars. The 12-story dome scraper had a neo-organic style. The building itself seemed to be growing phototropically from the downtown district. To Ray, the building's design proved that Evermore, the man, was still able to push the leading edge of scientific innovation. Kander and Jensen was still the biggest research and development company in the Dome, but from the presentation it was clear that Evermore was looking to challenge that, and Ray wondered how long it would be before K&J joined the pissing contest with an even bigger erection. The presentation faded to a gray screen captioned by four words, Making a Future Possible, and the E.I. Mobius Strip. The first time she had taken the tour, it had concluded by presenting her with an application for a very competitive position as principal researcher. Ray had filled it out on a whim, assuming it was either an accident or a plan to drum up controversy as part of a multi-layered buzz campaign. Yet she found herself staring at the image of the Evermore Industries building. Get real, Ray. You're barely three months into your first paid position as a research associate. There's a 0% chance Evermore Industries would want you, or even think you're ready to run your own lab. Ray gave up and went back to Hakaru to try one of the unsolved puzzles, but her focus kept drifting back to Evermore Industries. She switched windows, selected the EI presentation, and deleted it. The application was an accident. Dr. Evermore does not even remember you. She closed the app, instinctively grabbed her Omni off the workstation, and slid it into her pocket before taking a short trip around the oppressively small room. You always had to have some project you were working on. After graduating from the University of San Diego with a master's degree in microbiology, Ray had realized that although she had achieved something quite difficult, it wasn't enough. The next day, she had applied for Yale's synthetic bioengineering program. Three years into her PhD, her advisor told her about a grant for women interested in studying on Mars. Six months later, after being accepted to the University of Mars, she held a one-way ticket to the Red Planet, where she finished her PhD and was offered a position at Kander and Jensen Labs. Ray looked around and realized that her world was only getting smaller, from the entirety of Southern California, to a cloistered Connecticut campus, to a terror dome, to this. She looked around her tiny bunk room. This isn't the end of the road. This is the right way to do things. I've got the grades and scores, and now I need the training and experience. This time at Casma Australia is the requirement every good scientist has to put in. This room is the possibility that things will all come together the promise that someday I'll have the freedom and the funding to create something meaningful. She paced the perimeter of the four white walls, single bed with white sheets, cramped up against a white workstation, drenched in full-spectrum white light. There was enough room to stretch her arms out, and not much else. Fuck the possibilities! I need to get out of this fucking coffin! She yelled as quietly as she possibly could, self-conscious of her co-workers down the hall. God, when did I become such a mope? She thought back to the last time she was happy but that didn't really count. In the future, don't buy stims from anyone but me. The chemist made eye contact with Ray for a brief moment before looking back down at his Omni. The stims and the crash pads work as a team. The white pill brings you up, and the red pill slows your fall. Ray nodded. I just need the reds. Not yet. Swallow the pill whole. The chemist emphasized the first word. Do not take it if it's cracked or broken. The time-release layers are working for you. Otherwise, you'll just spike and crash even harder. If you want to get fucked up, he reached a hand into another pocket. I don't, she told him. Is it traceable? I start working at Kander and Jensen at the end of the summer. I'm selling chemistry, not magic. Of course it's traceable. And if we happen to cross paths at K&J, we never met. In fact, this is the last time we ever talk in person. From now on, texts only. 
the chemist slipped her a crinkly square of foil, which presumably contained the two crash pads. She'd gotten the stems from a classmate and had swallowed them without a second thought. She had already worked out the morality of it the first time she'd used them at the University of San Diego, and had come to the conclusion that it wasn't cheating. The stims hadn't magically given her the answers. They merely kept her focused for longer than normal. Is the ability to focus for hours on end one of the aptitudes the university was testing? No. Had she scored higher than her smarter peers because she'd gotten chemical help? Debatable. But this time she felt guilty about something. Why now? What was different about these illegal drugs? She knew that without them, the next few days would be miserable as the stims took their toll on her body. And without the crash, there was nothing bad about drugs anymore. So why the guilt? Was it the privilege that afforded her enhancement without drawback? No. It was part of her drugs or bad upbringing. It was her conditioning telling her that she was getting away with something. Ray made a conscious decision to leave these notions back on Earth with everything else and swallowed the first pill the moment she was alone. The guilt was replaced by shame, but only until the sugar layer dissolved and the crash pads started to work their magic, or their chemistry. The crash pads were more than just time-release energy. They allowed her to experience a brightness like a subtle warmth which filled her days. She had made more friends during graduation than she had during all her years at UMARS combined, and might have kept in touch if they hadn't become so unbearably boring as she became sober. God, that makes it sound like I don't have friends, Ray thought. After Deborah and I moved to the new place, it had only taken me a few days to make friends at the new school. I wasn't popular by any means, but I wasn't a loner. See, that's not even true. I fucking hated that we had moved away. I hated Deborah for it, and I wanted to rub my dour teenage angst in her face. But I mean, I could have made friends. People were interested in me. As she thought it, Ray realized that those people, who had eventually become her closest friends, were now 34.6 million miles away. Maybe it's time to make some new friends. From the past, Deborah reminded her, No one's going to want to meet you if you're such a sourpuss all the time. Thinking back to finals week and graduation was like watching someone else's memories. What about before then? When was the last time I was really happy? If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider following me on Twitter at Tyler R. McNamara. That's M-C-N-A-M-A-R-A and using the hashtag M-O-D-S-Book. You can learn more about the book project at earweekpublishing.com or on Facebook at Earweek Publishing. Earweek Serials is supported by you listeners. If you're enjoying this podcast, consider becoming a monthly supporter and gain access to bonus content at patreon.com slash motherofdarkspace. Or if you'd like to make a one-time donation, visit paypal.me slash earweekpublishing. Finally, I'd like to thank the artist's silent partner for the use of their song, Frequency. Now, the second half of Chapter 1. Thinking back to finals week and graduation was like watching someone else's memories. What about before then? When was the last time I was really happy? The art class at USD, she answered her own question. Ray had always loved painting, but had never given it her full attention. Deborah had never implicitly said it was a waste of time, but the papers decorating the refrigerator were report cards with A's, not the photorealistic self-portrait she painted in eighth grade. The last drawing to grace the fridge was their stick-figure family holding hands labeled Mom, Dad, Rachel, and Angelina, in thick brown crayon. Their old house sat off in the background on a bucolic purple hill. She was happy in those days, although blissfully unaware was more accurate, back when they called them Rach and Lena but remembering those days only made her feel hollow. Well, so what if I'm not glowingly happy about my current life situation? Not everyone is happy all the time. 
An explosion of laughter from the rec room echoed down the corridor. Ray's contemplative pacing brought her to the corner of her bunk room, staring down at her single piece of crumbled luggage. She knelt beside it and rifled through forgotten pockets until she found a tiny square of foil. When she unfolded it, a single red pill looked up at her. She had swallowed her last stim over four months ago, during finals week, and the one crash pad had been enough to bring her back to baseline. Why did I buy two, she wondered, and immediately knew it was because she always needed a contingency plan. I don't have a plan now. That's why I feel so trapped. The chemist had told her that the stims and the crash pads worked as a team. I don't need a pad. I need a little memory of what it feels like to relax and have fun. Ray slowly folded the pill back into its foil and set it on the floor beside the leg of her bed. Lifting the bed, she slammed it down on the foil, crushing the pill. Laying her omni on the floor, she unfolded the foil, examined the white powder with flecks of red, and carefully poured some of it onto the screen. How much does this weigh in milligrams? she asked it. The screen displayed the number 17, and she continued pouring until it read 21.42, about one-seventh of the 150-milligram pill. Ray folded the remaining dust back into the foil, licked her finger and dabbed at the powder on her omni until it was all stuck to her finger, then rubbed it on her gums. It tasted awful, but the unpleasantness somehow helped her feel better about taking it. She imagined the foul taste seeping in her blood and dripping down fleshy stalactites in that hollow place deep inside her. The assurance that something would change brightened her mood even before the chemicals hit her bloodstream. She slid her omni back into her pocket and walked off down the corridor. God damn it, Rockwell! Manfield is trying to shoot the moon! You've got to stop him, said the geologist. I can't do shit about it, Rockwell said, throwing an offsuit card in the center of the table, which was swept into Dorian's pile. All right, Dorian, it's up to you. I got it, said the new scientist. But he noticed Ray approaching before he laid down his card. Hello, I don't believe we were introduced earlier, what with the storm rolling in. He stood and stuck out his hand. I'm Dr. Peter Dorian. Jesus, Dorian, Manfield complained. The suspense is killing me. Take your turn, for God's sake. Ray shook Dorian's hand and found her grip to be twice what he was offering. I know that limp handshake. That's the, I'm trying to be fuckable, feel how sensitive I am handshake. It's as if there's only one person up here and everyone else is just a clone of the same asshole. She barely committed to the smile she gave as she said, Dr. Ray Dahlia, what are you playing? Hearts? It's only a four-player game, but I'll happily sit out the next round. Ray watched the geologist and the rover technician share a bemused glance as the new guy used the same old tricks they had once tried to pique her interest. You'll sit out the rest of this round if you don't take your turn, Manfield grumbled. That's kind of you, Ray said, dragging a folding chair over to sit beside Dorian. The other scientists seemed surprised at her choice. I'm here to make friends and have some fun, she thought. I can tell him off later. Dorian lay a jack of hearts face up on the table. Big man on the table, he said coolly. The other men shook their heads. Manfield started to laugh, tossing a queen on top, and said, That's a common misconception among young men such as yourself, thinking you're in charge when it's the queen with all the power. The volume of the room increased well above the roar of another frost geyser. Someone shouted, How did you not know he had the queen? Dorian rose his voice over them to make excuses about being distracted. A delicious burble of laughter floated up above the noise, and Ray was as surprised as anyone to discover that she was its source, and that a smile was stretched wide across her face. What do you mean, young men? We can't be more than three years apart, Darian pouted. Not every barrel produces the same vintage, Manfield smiled, and took a sip of dark liquid from the paper cup beside him. It hadn't been particularly funny, but Ray found herself laughing along with the rest of them, until it was cut short by someone's omni-ringing. It was Ray's, and it took her a while to realize it. 
She hadn't had a call in long enough that she had forgotten the sound of it. She pulled out her Omni and looked at the screen. Rockwell looked over her shoulder. Evermore Industries? Why is Evermore Industries calling you? Why is Evermore Industries calling me? It's got to be about the application, right? I should answer right now and tell them I filled out the application as a joke. Unless they're calling to apologize for accidentally sending it to me. But they wouldn't bother to do that, would they? Manfield stood and leaned over the table. That's a good question, Dahlia. Why is our competition calling you? I... I don't know, Ray answered somewhat truthfully. Somewhere was the feeling that she should be scared, but it felt like someone else's concern. She was merely confused. Does Candor know about this? Manfield asked. Before Ray could answer, he said, Well, he will soon enough. Who's Evermore? Dorian whispered. It had been almost a decade since anyone had heard anything about Ever Evermore. God, you really did just arrive, said Rockwell, who turned to the geologist and said, Does he really think he can pull himself back into the spotlight by throwing billions of dollars into that new building in the dome? Oh shit, that's Evermore? He certainly will not, as long as the employees of Cantor and Jensen remain loyal. Manfield gave Ray a look that should have moved her finger to disconnect the call. But what if he can offer me freedom years ahead of schedule? What if they're calling to save me from this god-awful place? Ray became aware of a heavy pounding in her chest, but the sense of whether she was excited or afraid was somewhere far away. I better see what they want, she said, and walked back to her room. This has been Chapter 1 of The Mother of Dark Space. Earwig Serials is brought to you this week by the puzzle game Hakaru. As I mentioned in the prologue, I'm an electrician, and problem-solving is my jam. This team-up between the Coder Aerial and Evermore Biomedical Systems produced a puzzle game that's easy to understand and play, and the solution players come up with could have an actual influence in the field of bioengineering. I built my own nucleic acid the other night while unwinding from class. So please consider supporting this product, as well as giving this podcast a rate and review on iTunes. Thanks. Talk to you again next week.